Considering Circumcision in the 21st Century with Moyle Rabbi Dr. Leslie Solomon. The bris is there as a deep connection. It's us as Jews to God, something which is deeply personal, and I would say it's exclusively personal. No one else knows about it. No one else needs to see it. It's about me and my connection and who I am and how I connect. And it's irrespective of how other people see me. It's about who I am ultimately. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. The practice of circumcision is as ancient as Abraham himself. Established as a covenant between God and Abraham, it is mandatory for Jews, almost universally practiced by Muslims, and adopted as common practice in many other communities, both religious and secular. In the Jewish tradition, circumcisions are performed by a moil. To discuss the ritual and significance of circumcision, Beliefs producer Jay Woodward spoke with Dr. Leslie Solomon. In addition to being an emergency room doctor, he is both a rabbi and a moil. This interview was recorded on New Year's Eve, 2019. Rabbi Solomon, thank you for meeting with me today. It's a great pleasure. Happy New Year. And to you, thank you. I sought you out because I was just doing some research about various different religious practices that come along with the New Year, because the New Year, of course, brings lots of revelry. And it led me to think about different kinds of rituals that we bring to our belief systems, be they food or dress. That brings us to circumcision, which is one of the most undiscussed in many ways forms of physical um, identification, a true blood ritual. There are lots of different ways you could describe it, but I was hoping you could start by just telling us what you do. Um, yeah, thank you for that. It's certainly the first thing that we do is, um, as Jewish families, when we give, have babies, is that we introduce a little baby into his, into his bris. We call it a bris. Um, and uh, what do I do? Well, I... I really just reflect what people people want for their for their babies. People want to, their children to be, become part of um, a sense of identity with the Jewish people, um, and the best well the way we do it as for eight day old babies is to have a bris. So first thing off, we just discuss um, how the baby is, um, how the mother is, how they're doing. Then we run through the bris ceremony, how it's going to work, and we fix a date for it. And that's usually a fixed date. Usually it's the eighth day. Um, if the baby's well, and we go and organize the bris for the for, for the eighth day. And on, when I arrive at the bris, we then go ahead and do the procedure, which obviously it's a, it's a surgical technique. Um, it involves a bit of pain for the baby, um, a bit of pain for the parents. Um, but the babies usually do really remarkably well. And within a few minutes, um, we're, the baby is calm and relaxed and sleeping. And then I'm, I'm off. I come back usually a few days later, make sure he's in good stead and then um, that's it it's a, it's really quite uh, it's not so much the procedure itself I think people get fixated on the procedure I think the more is is um, the experience what is the significance behind the eight days uh, good question and very pertinent and relevant to this time of year as we've just finished Hanukkah and uh, Hanukkah and Bris are very closely connected and they're brought to you as I say in Sesame Street by the number eight in so much as Hanukkah is the only festival which lasts for eight days throughout the entire Jewish world. Um, 
and birth takes place on the eighth day. So the number eight is hugely significant um, religiously. And its significance is in the fact that it follows the number seven. Um, and the number seven versus number eight is a major battle. It's a battle of Hanukkah. Um, in the times of Hanukkah, which was ancient Greek times, um, there was the Greek philosophy versus the Jewish ideology. And they're represented by the battle of number seven versus number eight. And seven, as I think we can relate this in some way, is a number which has a certain cadence um, which reflects a, sen a sense of nature. So, for example, we think about society, and society revolves around the number seven, certainly in terms of how we run out our daily, daily lives and our weeks. In terms of agriculture, there are cycles, agriculture seven. If you think about music, if you think about color, there's a natural cadence of number seven which crops up in all these natural rhythms of the world. And if you look at the ancient Greeks, they were into the nature of the world. That was about the body, about how fast you can be, how strong you can be. It was about the Greek literature, and the Greek philosophy, the great philosophers, the Aristotles of the world, right? The great scientists, the mathematicians, how far you can stretch your mind. The natural world, how far your brain can achieve, what your brain can achieve, what your mind can achieve. Uh, Art, what you can do in this world, what you can with the buildings, architecture, poetry, the great ancient Greek poets that we have. And if you think about Judaism, Judaism has a lot of those things are very strong in our culture as well. Uh, Jewish art, Jewish poetry, Jewish literature, Jewish, lots of Jewish philosophies particularly. What's the difference between that, between seven and eight? What's, what does that mean? What it means is, is that either you can live where there's a natural cadence to the world and you're stuck in it, i.e. You, you love art because of its art, you love literature because of the literature, you love the mind because of what your mind can achieve. The Jew does something different. He takes art, he takes literature, and he connects it to eight. Eight represents something outside the natural state of things, something which is above something which is beyond, something which is supernatural. We connect, therefore, to God, godliness. What God tells us to do is take art, take literature, take your mind, take your body, and connect, connect, use those things. Don't worship those things. Use them, connect to God through them, which is why Hanukkah, of course, is about the miracle, the miracle being the supernatural event of the oil lasting for eight days. That's what we celebrate by having the eight candles of Hanukkah because of a miraculous event. We connect to something outside nature through Hanukkah. We connect to something outside nature through the bricks. We connect to God himself. And that's why in the times of Greece, there was a royal battle over bris. For the Greeks said, we banning the bris. Why? Because for them, it's a mutilation of nature. You're taking the natural world and you're mutilating it. And of course, the echoes of those words are heard throughout the generations. But for the Jew, it's nothing to do with that. For the Jew, it's the connection. It's using the world. It's using the body. It's connecting to God through the body. It connects a, a physical world to a spiritual world. It's something which you can see, but you can't touch interface between the physical world and the spiritual world. And therefore we have here, the number eight connects us, that's why we do the breast on the eighth day, it connects us using a physicality, something which is spiritual, it's the, that interface. And that's why the, uh, the number eight, that's why we do it. And it's usually a time where um, part of the procedure is to name the baby, give the baby a Jewish name. And giving a Jewish name is a hugely emotional thing for a family. Because often you name after a, um, a family member that may have been deceased, and so you bring back 
you you connect you, you're connecting you're connecting uh, this baby not only to his his community his religion but in a deep sense to his family and those who have gone before him and he's connects to to that chain and he he brings it the idea of Jewish naming is to bring uh, into this world the the soul of the person who he's named after and you bring it back and you reinvigorate that legacy um, and you create a continuity you know, for that person who's passed on and it's, it's hugely emotional for the or for the parents, especially the grandparents, it's hugely emotional because often it's a grandparent who will have a spouse named after or a parent named after and that's wonderful for them to see that they are bringing their children, their grandchildren to this world and carrying on those values, the Jewish values, the continuity and just giving them the sense of what it means to be a Jew, the sense of Jewish morality. Um, and that's that's the important thing for me of the press isn't so much the surgical procedure, which of course has to be done with the highest you know surgical um, skill, etc. But more much important is is the meaning, the the connection, and the sense of identity. And we discuss that um, sometimes with the, the parents and um, what it means to have a press, why they're doing it, mm. uh, what they're trying to achieve, um, and often they'll just come with all interesting reasons why they do why they would do a bris um, but it's I think most people hopefully will find it a, is a very positively charged emotional experience um, it sounds like when you're talking about the enormity of the connection uh, to heritage to tradition to uh, Jewish identity uh, my first question was that it sounds like girls are left out is there a correlative is there an is there something that the girls get to do is it the same thing wow that's a great question um i mean the way i would approach that question if you let me if you allow me to um um is first of all i i think that that whatever i would say as a man to that to that question will always come slightly with a sense of, well, you're only saying that because you're a man. Um, in Jewish law, that in Jewish law, prayer is very much dealt with differently for men and women. For example, when a man prays, he needs to go and do something very physical. He needs to go to a synagogue. He needs to gather with nine other men. He needs to put on some clothing, a prayer shawl, put on the tefillin, which is part of the morning prayers. And there's a whole ceremony of prayer where there's a leader. He leads. He goes, hoo, hoo, hoo. They say, ha, ha, ha. Yeah? And there's a whole big, obviously not those words, I understand. But, but the, the point is there's, there's a whole physicality to it. And there's a whole ceremony to, to it. There's a whole expression to it, which is a very physical expression. For a woman... Her obligation to prayer is say, speak to God. Speak to God. Just say, go into a corner, wherever you like. Just close your eyes and just speak to God. You don't need anybody. You don't need anything. You don't need anyone around you. Now, I understand I'm, I'm generalizing and not all men and not all women are like this. But generally, that's what you'll find with men and women generally. As a result, when God gives us a commandment, he tells us, I want you to uh, appreciate the relation, what it means to have a bris, what it means to have a connection, what it means to be, have an identity. For a man needs a physical expression. He needs a physical thing that he can see, he can do, he can relate to externally to connect to that. A woman doesn't need that. She can relate, she can connect even without that. If I, if I go through a whole class about why we do a bris, the, the, the women will be nodding, of course we understand that, of course that we connect that, of course we understand those ideas. 
a man will be helped if he has a physical expression, which is why we do a bris. Now, if you don't like that answer, just speak to my wife about it, because that's what right. she says. So my original question was, um, why is the circumcision only for boys? Obviously, because there's a, there's a physical aspect to it about the genitalia. But going back to that, is circumcision an allegory as... Or is it a tribal marker? What is circumcision? And what do we know about how it began? Well, as far as I'm concerned, um, the Brit or the circumcision is a mitzvah. The word mitzvah means a commandment. It's actually the very early commandment um, that was given to the Jewish people. And it was given way, way back um, to Abraham. Uh, Abraham was... um, the first of the, the the Jews, if you like, and he started off the Jewish family, the Abrahamic family, um, which then led to the the large Jewish family and the formation of the tribes and then the Jewish Jewish people. Um, but way back, even times Abraham, um, it started as follows: um, Abraham had a slight dilemma. His dilemma, like all Jewish parents, like all parents probably in the world, the dilemma is that I'm feel connected. I feel I have a direction in life. I feel I know where I'm going. I have my values. But what about the kids? Okay, famous back to the future line, right? What about the kids? What's going to be with the kids? What's going to happen to the kids? So Abraham said to God, you know what? I have a relationship with you. I live in a pagan world. I've been through all kinds of things together with you in terms of the tests and reading the Bible. And now I'm afraid about my kids. What's going to be with them? What's going to be? How's it going to continue? Who's going to take on the, the baton? Who's going to lead the Jewish people in the future? How do I know that you're going to remain loyal to me and to my family? And God says, "We'll do a, we'll do a pact. We'll have a covenant." And the word bris means a covenant. That's what the word actually means. And it was a simply that it's going to be a relationship. We will forge a relationship, a special relationship. And God says, "You do this." And I will remain loyal. I will remain um, there. I will be your father in heaven. And we know that sometimes being a father in heaven, or being a father in this world, it has its has its pros and it has its cons, right? And uh, let me give you the following scenario. Okay, you are driving your car, and as you're driving your car, you look and you see on the sidewalk on the pavement, you see a kid running and running and running. Okay, he's a kid, he's a two, three-year-old kid. He's running, running as fast as he can. And you see a man chasing after this child. And as the child runs into the road, the adult behind him catches up with the child, takes him, grabs him, and gives him a whack across his backside to remind him that that's a really dangerous thing he should have done, he's done. So let me ask you, who's the, who's the adult in this, in this scenario? Who do you reckon? That's a tricky one to answer. It's the father. It's the father because the father cares enough to chase off this kid and prevent him hurting himself because the father cares. And sometimes caring can mean hitting. Sometimes caring can be loving. It all depends on what the child's doing at the time. But the father reacts in a way that the father should react to, this, to what's given in front of him. And that's what it means by being part of the Jewish people, is the covenant for us is that we have God who's our Father in heaven, who can say, when times are good, that's wonderful. And when times are bad, then I'm still your Father in heaven, and I will treat with you, treat you in a way which I'm going to help to 
create and reconnect that relationship with you may have decided to choose another path. It's interesting, your story, because it calls into question this, you know, the parenting with corporal punishment is significantly less common. How does the practice of, of, of the bris of circumcision translate into the 21st century when the criticisms of it can be that it is barbaric in its way? How, how does Jewishness evolve with that and answer to those criticisms? Well, first of all, the story about the father running off the child and hitting the child was simply just the story. But I just want to just, and I would certainly not agree that you should hit children. Absolutely not. You should not get that message. It's a terrible, terrible thing to do to our children. It's terrible parenting. You should not engage in that. Please don't hit your children because of the story. It's just a story um, just to show you that about a father who thinks he's caring, and therefore that's what a parent would do. But um, moving on to the second point. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, listen, this, the criticism of against um, um, harming our children, I, I, I would say as follows. Let, let, let's, 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 let, me, let me introduce to a game. This game was played by um, my old Rosh Hashiva, who was the head of the Jewish Academy where I studied. Um, and his name was Rav Noach, Rabbi Noach Weinberg. And he would play a game called the IU He Game. You heard of the IUHE game? I don't. We don't? Okay. So the IUHE game is played as follows. Um, and let me take give an example. Um, so a person um, is, is late. He's driving around the corner a bit too quickly. And as he drives around the corner, two wheels of his car come off the road. And he's spinning his steering wheel frantically to try and gain control of the car. And the car bounces back onto the road and he takes the corner and he carries on driving. And so um, so he says, oh, I'm just a fabulous driver, an expert. What a wonderful control I have of my car. Someone else will speak to him and says, you're slightly risky, I would say. That was slightly a bit uh, on the edge. And a third person who's speaking about him says, he's a reckless idiot. Okay, so another example. I am highly educated. You are easily persuaded, but he's just brainwashed. Do you get where I'm coming over here? I start to see what the point you're making is. So the IUHE game is played by perspective. Mm. Okay, so you can give any kind of name you want to to a a procedure. Um, So, for example, if any procedure that you may do to a child, which may be painful to to a child, you may say, "I am." protecting my child. I'm giving him a sense of meaning. I'm giving a sense of purpose. I'm giving a reason. You have strange ideas. Uh, yeah, but he is a brutal, you know, uh, child, whatever it is, okay? Um, barbaric, or whatever it may be. So it all depends on perspective. And, and I would say it really depends more to the point on is what you're doing to your child going to be meaningful? Are you bringing your child up in a way which gives them a sense of an eternal message? You give them a sense of connection. You give them a sense of Jewish ideals. You give your child a sense of the mission of the Jewish people. Is he part of it? Is he part of the community? Is he part of the family? Is he part of the of the historical nature of the Jewish people? If you're buying into that and you're giving that to your child's sense of purpose, then what you're doing at a bris is 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 beautiful. If what you're doing is simply doing something because you know, you've 
you've you're doing something which you don't know what you're doing and you're doing it because it's you know you're against your will and you're not going to bring a child I, I would still say maybe for that child if he grows up to be you know connected that's fine but to do it for 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 or i would never suggest that you would do it for to a child who's not jewish for example i don't think that thing that's i think that would be obvious something like what are you doing that for what are you connect what are you doing that for i would say i would say don't do that yeah there are some health benefits of course and that's all well and good but for the Jew, we don't do it for that. We do it because we're connecting a child to something which is much, much greater, much, much greater. We're connecting. We're making him. We're making him connect to the Jewish values of the, of the, of the eternal values of the Jewish people. Mm. Um, so, and, and I think that's 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 eternal. I think from the Jewish perspective, that's that's not a question of what people think nowadays about it. I think what people think nowadays about it. Like we know, the people think nowadays about it will change, will change. You know, like they have changed, so they will change. The p- things, things change, things evolve. But people think about things will change on, depending on what the society says at the time. If the society says it's fine, then it's fine. If it's no good, it's no good. If it says it's, it's great, it's great. So, but I think the Jewish eternal nature of it, going back from Abraham, which is, you know, 3,000 uh, years, it's a, it's a pretty long um, history of, 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 of that value and the eternity of that message. Abraham, imagine Abraham all those years ago thinking, what are my kids going to be like in 3,000 years' time? It's just, it's, just, it's just shocking to think about such a thing. It's such a long time ago <laughs> to think that there's still 3,000 years I've given them a message and they're holding on to it and they're still connecting to the ancient values of Judaism and what it means to be a Jew and part of the community and part of Jewish history. It's crazy. It's madness. And here we are in 2020, almost, right? And we're still there. We're still holding on to it. You bring up a, uh, a really great point about uh, the way circumcision moved into a secular world, and it became extremely common, uh, but the rationale before, behind it was not in any way connected to Judaism. It was just something that was routinely done. Do you have any comment on, on why that began to happen? I feel like it... Anecdotally, I feel like that's happening less and less, is that parents are choosing not to do this procedure that was done in American hospitals, in, in probably English hospitals as well, just as a matter of course. Um, yeah, I, I mean, if people ask me, what are the health benefits, for example, and it's really what you I think what you're driving at slightly, um, I'm not sure that the history of the American American circumcision and why it was such a common place over there, and why it's not, you know, not as common, you know, in Europe, for example. Um, but certainly, it's very common in, in other 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 societies as well. Um, but there are definite benefits to it. The definite health benefits, unquestionable health benefits, um, from the very fact that you cannot get a disease of the foreskin if you don't have one. You can't get it trapped, you can't get it caught, you can't get it torn, you can't get it pulled back too tightly, you can't be too tight to pull back forward again, and you don't get any of the, the, the nasty infections or diseases or the cancers of the force. It just doesn't happen because you don't have one, and therefore you've, you've already cancelled out a whole bunch of disease processes. And there's lots of discussion about uh, HIV, for example, and there's lots of discussion about um, cervical cancer as well as being the, the p- portals for the viruses being th- through the cells and the foreskin. And those are discussions which are which we leave to the journals. And I know that you know there's a f- 
all these there's lots of journals have done reviews about it and come up and the American Journal of Urology came up with a with a review review some while back, which the overall conclusion was that they would recommend it as a healthy thing to do. Um, I, I'm quite skeptical about these things. I think that um, I think that in all areas of, of all areas of medicine, there is nothing quite as biased as the relationship with circumcision. I think it's the most um, tainted um, area of 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 um, medical research. I think you'd be very very careful about not what's being written, but who's been writing it and what else they'd be writing about it and are they generally pro and generally against and you'll generally find that people are generally pro will be writing something pro and generally against writing against and it's very very murky waters i would say that um you there are some definite health benefits as laid out but um my feeling generally in medicine is as follows if you live in a society and it's considered and that it's a healthy, normal thing to be doing. I think that's probably a sensible thing to do because what do you know more than the general society that you live in? And and then God looks after us. You know, you do what you, what is considered, like, for example, vaccinations or whatever things you're doing when you're traveling abroad and you advise to give, take this, 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 this. I would say to anyone as a patient, if it's what's generally considered to be normative practice, then do it. And if that's the case, do it. And then it'll have, and then, you know, whether it will or won't is not up to us anyway. It's going to be God decides because look, a hundred people can have one do the same procedure, and there'll be X percent will have a reaction, etc. And others will be have benefits from it. Do go with the flow, go with normal. So if you were a child born in America and you're told that it's a normative practice to have it, I would say, yeah, there are health benefits. Go with it. If you're born in a country when they say don't, I would say then then that's that's fine. Go with that. But but again, these waters are so murky mm-hmm. you know, because there is so much. Um, it's so entrenched in, in in religious, you know, perspective that it's very very difficult to kind of really find a really clear, um, objective evidence either way. The bris is there as a deep connection. It's us as Jews to God, something which is deeply personal and i would say it's exclusively personal no one else knows about it no one else needs to see it it's about me and my connection and who i am and how i connect and it's irrespective of how other people see me it's about who i am ultimately and the mitzvah the commandments i do are simply there to help me express myself to allow me to become what i'm supposed to become we're sitting with a large leather volume here in your home and when i came in uh, I immediately asked you about it, and you said, "This is the Talmud, and this is what you should be asking about." Mm-hmm. And so, please um, tell me about this Talmud that you have with us today. Well, the Talmud uh, is the lifeblood of the Jewish people, and uh, the Talmud is the um, the written down um, oral law. And when um, Moses went to uh, God. Uh, on Mount Sinai, and God gave him an, a written law and an oral law. Um, the written law was the five books of Moses. The oral law was an oral tradition, and it was kept an oral tradition, and it was written down many generations later as the oral tradition was getting a bit more diluted. And it was written down in the form of the Mishnah and then expounded in the Talmud. And the Talmud is really uh, the lifeblood of every aspect of Jewish life in terms of the oral tradition. Uh, how you're supposed to live your life as a Jew and the reason why 
so exciting today to discuss it is because um, there was a project that was um, a man called Mayor Shapiro um, over 100 years ago um, in Lublin. He set up a program to study the entire Talmud, uh, one page a day, and go through the entire lot. And it's a seven and a half year project, so it's been through a few cycles. And the cycle is coming to an end for my when I go to the class I get today. Today is the final day of the cycle of seven and a half years. Yep. And tomorrow um, in New York, there is going to be a, a massive um, communal gathering of people who have either studied it or have been involved in it of, in, in MetLife Stadium in New York of close to 100,000 people are going to celebrate the completion of the cycle of the Talmud um, with, with just, just a, an, an amazing it's, the, it's, it's, a, it's a global international uh, project that, that Jews all around the world are studying the same page every day of the Talmud uh, through a seven and a half year cycle finishing this week starting again next week all over again um, and every seven and a half years there's a big celebration so that's so there's 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 no break between the seven and a half year cycles nope fantastic um so you have joined in on on this round you have been in a daily study for seven and a half years with 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 the talmud yes correct and you know the horrible questions that's coming next, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, don't. Do you have a favorite moment? Does, was there something that really spoke to you? Yeah, my favorite page is a tractate, and it's called Sota, and it's on page 14. So if you manage to read, get to that one, it really, for me, that is absolutely um, the definition of what it means to be a Jew. Can you read a little for us? I, well, I can. It's an oral, so I can I can say it out loud to oh, you. Yeah. Um, it discusses the um, what what God is in terms of His relationship with man. Um, that that, for example, we find in the Bible that God uh, clothed uh, Adam and Eve, and God visited Abraham when he was sick, uh, and God does things which are 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 acts of kindness to to man to mankind we see different examples of this and he says to us what you do in this world is nothing more than to connect to me and the way you can connect to me is by being like me be like me and that's how we'll connect spiritually so the commandments we have are to help you clothe people, to visit the sick, to, to do all acts of kindness, which God does to us, which of course he does it all the time, from keeping us going, keeping us alive, and giving us all our health and everything. If we do that to other people, then we can be like God. We can be godly, and therefore we can be like him and connect to him. So that's the message of that page. Yeah. Rabbi Solomon, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Our guest was Moyle and Rabbi Dr. Leslie Solomon. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.